Well, as we continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew, I've been thinking a lot this week about uh, just the, the sheer number of objections to biblical Christianity that the church has had to endure through the centuries. And certainly as we go through the Gospel, we're going to see all the different times that Jesus is opposed by other people and challenged, uh, certainly in his profession, what he's saying. Even today, the faith is constantly under attack with really a, a new or a rehashed battle emerging seemingly every 20 to 30 years. If you just follow the course of church history and you read about it, just every couple of years there's just this new thing that the church at large is, is uh, contending for or fighting against. Right now I believe that we're even on the precipice of a massive debate over the doctrine of the church, the church itself. What is the church and how does it function and how do we do church? Can we do church online? What is the nature of the assembly? Is it essential that we gather together? All these kinds of things. We're already seeing a new wave of, of books and resources coming out dealing with this. Uh, just even now, a plug for this, uh, my friend Dustin, who we just wished happy birthday, has a book coming out with Crossway on the beauty and loveliness of the church that will be out in the spring. So we're seeing quite a few of these moving forward. People are wanting to, to get answers about church itself, the nature of the assembly. And so this is not a new phenomenon for us to be contending for some doctrine uh, at every single generation. In fact, I, w- I would be uh, hard to or hard-pressed to find anybody who fielded more objections and questions to doctrine and practice than the Lord Jesus Christ. Over the course of three years in ministry on earth, he answered questions and challenges from the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, from the Romans and the Samaritans, the Gentiles, even the disciples of John, and even his own disciples asking him questions. And he answered questions about virtually everything, from the character and nature of God, to the Bible, the law, the covenants, questions about prophecy, the Messiah, his own death and resurrection, human government, taxes, marriage, divorce, remarriage, dietary laws, giving, even the temple. But on this particular day that we're going to look at this morning, Jesus is approached about the issue of fasting. But as we're going to see, there's actually more behind this question than just the question. So if you haven't already, turn to Matthew chapter 9 with me. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 9. Now we don't exactly know how much time has taken place uh, in between uh, the beginning of this dinner that Jesus is at and this actual interchange with the disciples of John. But we know that it takes place either at the dinner at Matthew's house or shortly thereafter. And so far in chapter 9 of the Gospel, three groups have approached Jesus in opposition. First, we encounter the scribes in verse 3 who believe that Jesus is blaspheming because he's claiming to be able to forgive sins. Who is able to forgive sins except God alone, they reason. But Jesus proves his authority by healing the sick man's paralysis and thereby declaring his own glory and his ability to forgive sins. Next, we see Jesus uh, talking with the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they challenge Jesus on his practice of eating with sinners and tax collectors. They actually go to the disciples and sort of try to start some kind of trouble with the disciples first. Jesus actually jumps in and answers the question for them. And he reasons this way. It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Claiming to be the great physician, he concludes, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. 
So Jesus is not there for the spiritually healthy people, even though the Pharisees are far from spiritually healthy. But he's there for those who know that they are spiritually sick. He's there for sinners. Thankfully, he's there for us. And then in verse 14, really a third group of people approach Jesus about the issue of fasting. And that's what we're going to look at today. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 14. And the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. So we're going to look at these verses today. Now again, this third group of questioners, really it's, they're less hostile than the other two. These men in fact are allies to Jesus and his disciples. And who are these men? These are the disciples of John. Now, John, there's many Johns listed in the scriptures. This is John the Baptist. So the disciples of John the Baptist. Now, remember, John the Baptist comes shortly before the arrival of Jesus into ministry for the sole purpose of announcing the coming of the Messiah. Remember, John is crying out in the wilderness, make straight or clear the path for the way of the Lord. He calls for a baptism of repentance uh, he calls for them to do the works and, the, and the, the bear the fruits that are worthy of such repentance. Now, we do know that John and Jesus are actually related. They're technically, as far as I can tell, cousins through their mothers. Uh, this, despite knowing one another, though, it would not be until John sees Jesus coming to him while he's baptizing. At that point, when he's in the Jordan River, something changes in his revealed understanding, and he sees and beholds Jesus as the Messiah. And he proclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now John did not have full revelation of what all this meant. There was still lots of questions. Later on, in fact, in Matthew 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse 3, Jesus sends word, or excuse me, John sends word from prison. He's in prison for really opposing Herod. And he sends his disciples and a message to go and ask Jesus this. He says to Jesus, are you the expected one? Or should we be looking for someone else? And Jesus replies with an, a message of affirmation that he is, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah. But at this point, according to Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, John has been imprisoned by Herod. In fact, that imprisonment becomes the catalyst for Jesus relocating his ministry. But now, at this point, John is in prison, and the disciples who've been following John, now they're kind of homeless, because their teacher, their leader, is in prison. They don't really know where to go now. Where do, they, where do they go? Where do they travel to? What do they do? Now, we do know that Andrew, at least, and perhaps a few of the other disciples, maybe John, maybe Philip, maybe Thomas, but several of them had been following John the Baptist, but now had begun following Jesus. But not all of the disciples of John, however, began to follow Jesus. Several continued to follow John. In fact, as late as 20 years later, this is kind of remarkable, 20 years later, and according to Acts chapter 19, there were still disciples of John. And so even though the final stage of the 
uh, the revelation of the Holy Spirit uh, to the people of God, really the last step is to reach these disciples of John in Acts chapter 19. And they approach the disciples, if you can remember this from the text, and they say, you know, have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit? And they say, we don't even realize that there was a Holy Spirit. And so at that point, they receive the Spirit of God, they're regenerated, and they begin to uh, believe in their salvation has been made full in the knowledge of the ministry of Christ and of His Spirit. But these are the disciples of John. They come to Jesus with a question. Now remember, word has been traveling around that Jesus is eating with sinners and tax collectors. Now, if you're a respected rabbi, you don't do that. You don't spend your time with those who are the lowest of the low, the people who are, are not, not, it's not that everybody doesn't have sin because they recognize everybody had sin, but these are people who are identified with their sin. So it's a, it's a pejorative term, even more so, that that person is a sinner. And tax collectors were no better. In fact, he made a regular practice of having fellowship with the most sinful people in Israel. And later on, Jesus is actually called by his opponents, he's called a glutton and a drunkard because he's caught at these feasts all the time, celebrating and eating and dining and having fellowship with, even though neither of which he was actually guilty of. Jesus never was a glutton, he never was a drunkard, ever. But he was slandered nonetheless because he engaged in fellowship with sinners. And I'm thankful that he does. And so hearing of Jesus' social activities, we read in verse 14, the disciples of John came to him asking, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Why are they asking him this? Well, the practice of fasting was really a spiritual discipline. It was practiced in the Old Testament and carried forward into the New Testament. Generally speaking, it involves going without food or even without drink for a period of time, but for the purpose of spiritual uh, spiritual reasons. Many times, fasting is tied to mourning or lamenting. There could be fasting for practical and personal reasons for your own issues. So say you were engaged in a sinful behavior and you realize the the depravity of your sin and you go to repent. Part of your repentance could be a period of fasting in remorse over your sin, a desire for personal holiness. Maybe there's a a season of your your life where you're maybe not as dealing with issues of sin, but you realize that you just want to be closer to God and so you'll you'll engage in a, a period of fasting for the purpose of drawing near to God and even in the nature of you know, just how fasting works, every time you feel a hunger pain in your stomach, it's a reminder, a physical reminder that I, I need God. God's the one who sustains me, whether in physical being or in spirit. And so fasting is a, is a useful tool for purposes like that. But other times fasting could be communal, whereby members of Israel, they would mourn some kind of a national event or a national tragedy. And there's really only a few times a year where fasting was required. And only one time was mandated by Scripture. And that was on Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16.31 sets that day as a Sabbath of solemn rest. And he goes on to say that you may humble your souls. Now the Jews would have heard that phrase, humble your souls, and they would have connected that to spiritual uh, fasting. Fasting would, would have been part of that humiliation. So oftentimes they would either sit in sackcloth or ashes, they would have mourning, they would have lament, uh, they would fast, they would do all these things that would involve the humbling of their souls. Then he goes on to say, this is a permanent statue. So basically Israel is always going to fast on Yom Kippur. In addition to the Day of Atonement, however, 
the Jews also fasted for uh, Purim. Purim was a festival commemorating the defeat of Haman's plot to massacre the Jews, and you read about that in the book of Esther. Uh, in addition to that, the Jews also fasted for uh, something called Tishabav, Tishabav, which is uh, translated the ninth of Ab. It's uh, Ab is a month. Uh, this is the event of the destruction of uh, Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians come through and destroy everything. That was a national day of mourning, and that day carried forward. And so every time they would, uh, they would acknowledge Tishabav, they would fast for that. So these three events, they were solemn events that necessitated fasting. However, by the time of Jesus, spiritual practices like fasting and even almsgiving, they were seen not just as markers of a personal spirituality. They weren't just considered uh, events for national or personal mourning, but they also became markers of piety and holiness. They were really first sensual virtue signals is what they were. It was a way to show other people how righteous and how holy you were. In fact, the Pharisees, they became so obsessed with fasting and all these outward marks of piety that they fasted twice a week. They were only required to fast three times a year. They did this twice a week. In fact, we read about this uh, in Luke's Gospel where the Pharisee and the tax collector, they go to the temple and the Pharisee gets up and he's talking about, I praise you, God, that I'm not like this sinful tax gatherer, that I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I have. And he goes on and on and on. All these markers of spirituality, fasting was a big part of that. But more than the frequency of it, they also made a big spectacle of fasting. Jesus no doubt has the Pharisees in mind when he gives warnings about fasting in uh, Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast... Anoint your head, wash your face, so that when you're fasting will be not, not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret real, will reward you. And so they would engage in this practice where they would, you know, they would keep their faces all distorted. They would crunch up their faces and they would weep and mourn and they would wear ragged clothes. And people, they'd walk around people would say, oh, what are you doing? Oh, I'm fasting. I haven't eaten in 24 hours. Oh, you, know, oh, you must be really spiritual then. They would practice this, and they would do this kind of visible piety. Again, there's nothing wrong with fasting as a spiritual discipline, but the Bible's very clear that we are not to do this simply to be noticed by other people. That goes with any spiritual discipline, by the way. That goes with prayer, that goes with Bible reading, that goes with anything that you would do as a spiritual discipline, that you are not to do it for the purpose of being noticed by other people. I always have to sort of chuckle a bit when I, I don't go on Instagram very often, but when I do, I'll see pictures of people posting pictures of their Bible with all the notes highlighted and all the stuff and a cup of coffee and all this. And I understand why people do it. It's kind of just sort of an aesthetic thing and that's nice. But, but do you really want to showcase the, the intensity of your Bible study? Is that something you really want the outside world to be gawking at or is that for you to know God better? Again, I'm not telling you not to post on Instagram, but Consider the motive why you do anything spiritual. Consider the motive. That's the whole idea. For the Pharisees, however, this was all for show. This is all for show. They only did this to be noticed by men. The disciples of John, however, they were slightly different. Many scholars believe that John the Baptist engaged in what was called a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow. 
This was an intense discipline of devotion. He was an incredibly devoted guy. A little extreme, but devoted nonetheless. He refrained from cutting his hair. He dressed in camel clothes, very rough, coarse clothing. He ate locusts and honey. I mean, he just was kind of a fringe sort of a guy, but it was for the purpose of devotion. In this vow, you're not to touch anything associated with death, uh, whether it be a corpse, a dead body, or even go into a grave. And so, which is interesting, when Jesus actually goes and finds these demon-possessed people in the tombs, John the Baptist would never be caught dead uh, in the gravesite. Pardon the pun. Uh, but that was something he didn't engage in. He didn't deal with anything with death. And another thing he did is he didn't, he didn't engage in any kind of form of alcohol. He, didn't, he abstained from all forms of uh, alcoholic consumption. But this was all voluntary. He did this voluntarily for the purpose of holiness and devotion. It's likely that many of his followers would have emulated him in this practice and perhaps other practices such as fasting. They might have also fasted more frequently, again, for the purpose of spiritual devotion. And so when the disciples hear that Jesus has been associating with sinners and attending elaborate feasts, they're kind of confused. And it makes sense that they would be. And you have to think with me about this, that, okay, if John was a pious and holy man, and elsewhere Jesus says there's there's no one more godly on planet earth than John the Baptist, if John's holy and pious, uh, pious and devoted, and he abstained from excesses, certainly the Messiah would be more devoted, right? And he would abstain from even more things, and he would be more, uh, more constrained in his behavior. That might have been their reasoning. But then they hear, but wait a second, Jesus, who is the Messiah, he and his disciples, they go and they eat and they drink freely at banquets. And they get together and they associate with with sinners and with tax collectors and they do all these things publicly and it doesn't make any sense. Why are they not fasting? Why are they not abstaining from engaging in these kinds of activities? That's the nature of the question. We don't understand why are you doing these things when John is far more devout, it seems, in his practices. But Jesus responds to their question really in three ways. Three ways. The first way comes in verse 15. Look at verse 15. And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. The first response considers the imagery of a wedding. A wedding. So at a wedding you have the bride and you have the bridegroom. Now at the event of a wedding here in Jerusalem or in Israel, this would have been a week-long celebration. A wedding in Israel was a big deal. We think it's a big deal today. It's a big deal for them over the course of many, many days. And the question is, well, who's responsible for planning this elaborate wedding and this huge festival where all your friends gather for a week? And the answer is, well, the best friends of the groom. So the groom would go and go to his best friends, his groomsmen, and he would say, okay, you guys are going to be in charge of this. And so they would see to the task of overseeing this huge banquet. Now, Jesus here employs the use of logic. Fasting is generally associated with mourning. Okay, again, mourning. What kind of an event would call for mourning? And you would say a funeral, right? You would mourn at a funeral. Is it, however, appropriate to mourn at a wedding? I guess it depends on who the bride is marrying, of course, but generally speaking, you would not mourn at a wedding. Generally, you would rejoice at a wedding. You would rejoice. 
So Jesus notes the attendance of the bridegroom, his groomsmen, the guys throwing the party, the attendance of the bridegroom, they cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? They're throwing the party. Can they mourn during this week-long celebration? The answer is no. What's the illustration? Jesus is likening himself to the bridegroom, and the disciples are his attendants. Who is the bride? Who is the bride? Well, we know now from the biblical revelation that the bride is the assembly of redeemed believers. It's the church. But if the disciples are the attendants of the groom preparing the celebration, let me ask you this question. Who's the best man? If the disciples are the attendants and Christ is the bridegroom, who is the best man? Ready for this? It's John the Baptist. It's John the Baptist. If you would, go over to John chapter 3 real quick. John actually talks about this. It's pretty cool. John 3. This is really his last testimony. He's baptizing at this point in, uh, in Anon near Salim. He says there's much water there. People are coming to him for baptism. And it says at this point in verse 24, John had not yet been thrown in prison. So this is before this event. Verse 25, I'm in John 3. Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with us beyond, with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent ahead of him. Here, listen to this, verse 29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. Who is John talking to? He's talking to his disciples. Likely many of the same guys who are coming to Jesus these several months later and asking him about this, about this issue. See, John understands, and Jesus affirmed, that the arrival of the Messiah was a joyous thing. This is an exciting thing for Israel. This is a marvelous thing, a triumphant thing. And John's saying, because the Messiah is here on earth now. At the beginning, and even John says this, I didn't know who I was preaching about. I just knew that my job from birth was to go and proclaim the arrival of the coming of the Lord the Messiah, I went out and I was faithful to that message. I was a servant of God. I proclaimed the coming of Messiah. I proclaimed, I proclaimed, I warned, I warned, I baptized for the sake of repentance. And then one day, I saw him walking toward me and I knew in that moment, it's him. It's Jesus of Nazareth. He's the one we've been waiting for. And that's when he got excited. And because of that, once he realized, this is the one I've been waiting for my whole life, that's when he said, my joy is complete. I'm excited now. And so I'm, I'm, I'm just the, the friend of the bridegroom. And I'm here to rejoice. He said, because he's here, my joy is full. And now I can go and decrease. And now I can go and die. Because the Messiah is here. And so Jesus, he's seizing on this question and this illustration to John's disciples. He's saying this, why would you fast at a wedding? Why would you fast at a wedding? You wouldn't. 
It would be totally inappropriate. Can you imagine going to a wedding? And you walk in, you sit down, they get up and they start to toast and they start to have dinner and they're happy and they're giving their, they're giving their toast and they're excited. And then you get up and you start to mourn and to weep and cry. and It would make no sense. It would make no sense at all. The disciples aren't fasting because there's no reason for them to mourn. Jesus is here. And He's with them. And they're excited. And they're rejoicing. And every new day that they're with Him is a new exciting day. They don't know what's going to come. But, Jesus says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. This Greek word translated taken away indicates a a sudden removal. It's a severe, like a sharp, very quick thing. This is certainly a reference to to Christ's death on the cross. Certainly, every scholar sees that. In fact, this is the first place in Matthew's Gospel that we see uh, an allusion to Christ being taken away and killed. And when that happens, he says, the disciples, they will fast. They will fast when I'm gone. And even though Scripture doesn't tell us explicitly, my suspicion, just reading the Gospels, my suspicion is that the disciples didn't eat a single thing the day that Jesus was crucified. Not on Friday night, how could they? And even on Saturday, perhaps, I'm guessing that they were fasting during that time. Because why would they not? Their rabbi, their savior, their friend has been taken away from them. And even when Jesus encounters uh, Mary in the garden on, on Resurrection Sunday, he approaches her and she's crying, she's weeping. And, he sa- and she says, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. She's still upset on the third day. But of course, the third day, Jesus resurrects. He comes back to life. This is a, a joyous thing. Good Friday is a solemn event. Now, we do celebrate on one level because our sins have been paid for. Christ goes to the cross. He dies on the cross. The penalty of our sin is placed on Him. And when He dies, He puts our sins, the penalty of our sins, to death. That's part of the Gospel. That our sins are put to death on the cross with Christ. But it's still a a, a date to mourn. Because it's, it's the murder of our Lord. But then the third day, Resurrection Sunday, it's a celebration. For me... Christmas is not the big event in my mind. I love Christmas. My kids love Christmas more. Christmas is great. But Easter is better because Easter is the celebration of the resurrection of Christ. It's focusing on His current session, where He is now, what He's doing now. That He is alive. He is risen. And so this is a joyous thing. And I'll I'll tell you this. It's no coincidence to my mind that after the resurrection in John chapter 21... Jesus shows up on the, shore, on the shores of the Sea of Tiberias. Remember this? They're all fishing on the boat, and then they see Jesus walking along the shore. Peter, impetuous Peter, jumps out of the boat, and he starts swimming to shore, and the guys follow him. When they get to shore, what is the first thing Jesus does? He cooks them breakfast. I love this. He cooks them a meal. And they get together, they sit down, and they're not fasting at that point, right? No, Jesus is there, and he's eating with them. They're dining together. It's a beautiful, a beautiful picture, not of mourning, but of rejoicing. And that is what characterizes the Christian life, is rejoicing. Read Philippians. You can't walk away from Philippians and feel sad. It's, it's all about rejoicing. I love that Philippians is written while Paul's in prison, by the way. But it's rejoicing. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. 
And so we are to be a joyful people as believers. This is one reason I have concern with the recent trend of what is known as Christian lament. Certainly, the practice of lament is biblical. There are certainly times when lamenting is called for. We are to lament our own sin. We are to lament things that are going on in the world that are detestable. But it seems like lately there's been a hyper-focus, a hyper-focus of this practice of maintaining a, a constant posture of lament over things like generational sins and cultural problems where we're just this sad and sullen and lamenting people. It's very popular. There's books and podcasts and all kinds of things about lament. But the bottom line is that ongoing and constant lament is not to be a characteristic of the Christian life. Constantly, I'm talking about. We are a redeemed people of a risen Christ. We have every cause to rejoice and proclaim the good news of a living God who saves people from their sins. For those who are still dead in sins, they should be weeping and mourning. And when they come to the realization of their sins, they do. They cry out to God. And they say, Lord, forgive me. And they weep and they mourn and they, spiritually speaking, dress in sackcloth and ashes and they, they fast in their hearts and they, get, they humble their souls and, Lord, forgive me, forgive me. But once you've received the grace of Christ, once you know you've been forgiven and God's grace and His mercy has been poured out lavishly on you and you're a new creation in Christ, what does it produce in you? More weeping? More lamenting? It produces joy. The joy of forgiveness, the joy of restoration, the joy of regeneration. And then you go to someone you say, guess what, I have good news. They say, oh, the world is going to pot. It is. But guess what? There's a risen Christ. And we have His news. We have His gospel. We have hope. Believers, you have hope to give to people in the form of the gospel of our risen Lord. Seize on that. Share that hope that you have. Give an answer, as Peter says, for the hope that you have within you to those who ask. Again, weeping is appropriate at times. There is always a season, right? There's a time to weep and a time to rejoice. There are seasons for that. There are times. But be a people. Be a people of joyfulness. The next two responses of this really come in verses 16 and 17. Jesus is continuing along, answering these disciples of John. And 16 and 17, these two verses, they are connected and they're used, they're built on the illustration of verse 15. I think you're going to see where we're going here. The two images come as parables about clothing and about wineskins. I'm going to take them together before we explain the meaning. Verse 16, Jesus says, No one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. It's pretty straightforward, even for today. You understand that when you buy a new piece of clothing, brand new, and you wash it for the first time, it can shrink a little bit, can it? The same thing happens here that Jesus is talking about. If you had an old, weathered garment that's been around for a while, and this old coat or this old garment tears or gets a hole in it, you're going to patch it up. But what kind of fabric are you going to use to patch up this hole or this tear in an old garment? You're not going to use a brand new piece of fabric because if you sew it on and then you wash it and wear it, eventually the fabric is going to shrink and sort of pull away. And he says a worse tear is going to result. 
And so, again, if you try to fix a, a, a tear with an older, or excuse me, with a newer, unshrunk piece of fabric, it's going to wreck the piece of clothing. That's what Jesus says. For the patch will eventually pull away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Pretty straightforward, right? The principle is this. The old and the new don't go together. That's the idea. The old and the new, they don't go together. Verse 17, same idea. He says, nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. He says, but they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, they would have all heard these two sayings and been, well, of course, they would have nodded their heads. Yes, that's true. That's true. The ancient practice of fermenting wine consisted of taking the juice from the grapes, and they would go and they would store it in these wine skins to be fermented. They would get these skins, obviously, from an animal where they'd cut off the limbs and they would sew it together, sometimes even turn it inside out, and they would, they would secure this, this sack, really, and they would pour the new juice into that sack and seal it off. And then what happened is over the course of time, the, the juice would begin to ferment and the gases would expand and the, and the receptacle would expand and contract based on that process. However, if you tried to put in brand new wine into an older wineskin. Now, the older wineskin would have been a little bit hard. It would have lost its elasticity. You put new wine into that old receptacle. When it would expand and contract, it would crack and break, and then everything would be ruined. And so that's the idea here. Jesus says they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and then both are preserved. You can use both again. But the principle is the same. The old and the new don't go together. What is he talking about? What does this mean? It's clear that Jesus is talking about a fundamental shift between the old and the new. The old covenant and the new covenant. See, the Jews were expecting the Messiah to come and solidify Judaism as the dominant religious system. Sort of a reformed, a new, a new and improved Judaism. That he was going to be, he was going to be the, the purveyor of Judaism on steroids. And this is going to be the worldwide thing. He was going to resolve all their problems. He was going to fix everything, even Rome. He was going to settle all their theological disputes. And he was going to institute a new era of Jewish supremacy on the earth. But here's the thing. When Jesus comes, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He makes statements about the law of God in Matthew 5.18. He says, Heaven and earth will pass away, yet not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So he wasn't going to come and destroy the law, what God had already written. But as, as we understand, the word of God is timeless and eternal. What he's talking about transitioning is this religious system of Judaism that's going to pass away. The system of Judaism itself. It's a man-made system of laws and customs, practices, rites, traditions, all the things that Jesus opposes with the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, all of their system that they get angry at him over, he says all of that is obsolete and all that's going to pass away. Not only did it prove to be not savable, you couldn't get saved in that system. All that did was just oppress people. That's why Jesus gets so angry in Matthew chapter 23. That becomes the pinnacle of his anger at the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees because their system was not exposing people to the glory of God and the salvation that is found in the gospel. Rather, it was an oppressive system of laws and stringent practices that was crushing Israel. And he gets angry about it. 
Because the purpose of law is to reveal sin and thereby bring about the need for the Savior. Jesus, uh, excuse me, Paul says in Galatians, the law is the tutor that leads us to Christ. You can't find grace in law. When we talk about the gospel, one of these days I'm going to teach on this, there is a distinction between the law and the gospel. The mandates of the law which reveal sin and show us our depravity and the good news and the grace and mercy and forgiveness of the gospel found in Christ. Law is not the same as gospel. Gospel is not the same as law, but they both are essential. You need both. Otherwise, if I don't have law, I don't understand my sin. Someone says, Jesus has come to save you. Save me from what? But if you only have law and you say, oh, I'm so sinful, I'm so wretched, I'm so awful, and never give them the gospel, they die in the the, the condemnation of their sins. So the gospel says you can be free from this. You can be saved from the curse of the law. You can be saved from the penalty of your sins. You have grace in Christ. So there is a distinction. But they're trying to build their own gospel based on law. And Jesus says, that's not going to work. I didn't come to go and participate in your traditions and give you more and more oppressive law. This old covenant, which the Israelites had failed to live up to, it didn't produce what they were hoping it was going to produce. The covenant was if they obeyed, God would bless them, but they had rebelled. They had turned from God. They needed a new covenant, a covenant of God's grace, which they received in Christ. Judaism was the old wineskin, but this law of Christ and grace of Christ was the new wine. Yet when he arrived, the religious leaders, they were expecting him to fit into their mold. He's going to be just like us. They expected him to be zealous for Jewish law and for Jewish traditions. Zealous to fast, well, not twice a week. He's going to, he's going to fast every single day of the week, if that's even possible, right? No. They expected him to be a Pharisee of the Pharisees, like Paul. But he wasn't. He came and he ate with sinners and tax collectors. That wasn't what they were expecting. He came and he healed on the Sabbath. How dare you heal on the Sabbath? That's what he's come to do. He rejected the traditions of men. He overturned tables in the temple courts. He attacked the hypocrisy of the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders. He even loved Samaritans and he loved Gentiles. They're not supposed to do that at all. Far from merely giving more law, he offered them grace, he offered them mercy. And this produced nothing but indignation from the scribes and Pharisees. They were angry about this. So much so that within a short time, they're ready to plot to kill him. And very quickly, you read the Gospels very quickly, they're already starting to think about it. John chapter 5, they're already picking up stones and getting ready to kill him over this issue. But Jesus reserved for them nothing but judgment. In Mark 13, actually, after unloading on the Pharisees in righteous indignation, the disciples, they follow him out of the city. They go up the Mount of Olivet. And so they're traveling up the side of this mountain. They, they look back over their shoulder and they see the, the whole scope of the city. And it's probably the end of the day, so the sun is gleaming off the tops of the, of the buildings. And they look over their shoulder and one of the disciples says, Jesus... Behold, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. Referring to the structures of the Temple Mount. 
But Jesus responds, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. The temple, which is the iconic symbol of Judaism, was going to be destroyed brick by brick. That's what Jesus is saying. Now they would have scratched their heads. What are you talking about? But this comes to fulfillment in 70 A.D. when the Roman general Titus Vespasian he ransacks Jerusalem. He kills over a million Jews and destroys everything. The whole Temple Mount down to the last brick. There's not a single brick standing. There's, there's an outer wall even today. It's called the Wailing Wall. That's the outer wall. But the in actual mount itself, the, the Temple itself, is gone. It was a judgment of God against a people who had rejected the Messiah. And even after the destruction of the Temple, the Jews kind of regathered together and tried to figure out what they were going to do. They have to repurpose Judaism because they don't have any more temple. There's no more sacrifices. There's no more gathered worship. So they begin to modify. And even today, we have a a modified form of Judaism. There's really two kind of main groups of this. There's Orthodox Judaism, which is essentially like this, except without the temple, without the sacrifices. Then you have a more popular one called Reform Judaism, which is what we see today. It's more just kind of like a essentially like a social gospel where you just do good and be good and we're the people of God so therefore we're going to go to heaven and they go to temple and things like that. But it's, it's really a pared down version. This Judaism that Jesus sees in his day is gone. Totally gone. And even today, as well-meaning as Judaism tries to be, it is nothing more than an old wineskin without Jesus Christ. But guess what? We have good news. We have good news for all people because the day is coming when Jews around the world and in Israel are going to finally acknowledge their Messiah. Zechariah notes this, they will look on the one whom they've pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. In doing so, the Bible teaches that they're going to repent, they're going to believe in their Messiah and they're going to receive the gift of eternal life in Christ alone, Christ alone. They will see Him. In fact, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There is one gospel for all people. Jesus Christ. And there's coming a day, my friends, in Revelation 21, it says that He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no longer any more death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. We, we are associated with crying and mourning, and weeping, and pain. In this life, there is trouble, is there not? People get sick. People die. Bad things happen. But he says, there's coming a day when I'm going to wipe away everything. There will be no fasting in heaven. Only rejoicing. Only celebration. There will only be Christ and His people who will be filled with joy evermore. And so that's what Jesus is talking about to these disciples. This is just only a preview of the glory to come. He didn't come for the purpose of fasting. He didn't come for the purpose of laws and traditions and ceremonies of men. He came that we might have life and have it to the full. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to You. We're grateful because even though, Lord, there are times, there are seasons when we do mourn and we do fast and we do weep, there is great evil in the world. 
There is sin in the world. There is sin in our own bodies. But we also understand and we also recognize that your grace and your mercy is far more than our sin. Lord, I think about Romans chapter 5 where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so, Father, even though, yes, we are predisposed to grief and to worry and to mourn and to be sad over our sin and over evil, Lord, I pray that You would sow into our hearts a desire to rejoice even more. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, says Psalm 150. And Lord, let us be a people that despite the pain and the suffering that we do see and experience, that we still have a joy that surpasses all understanding. That we cling to You as our Lord, as our Savior, as our Master. And that by You we find life and grace and peace and mercy. We thank You that the old things have passed away in this covenant. The new has come. Such a marvelous thing to be in Christ. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone who does not know Jesus, if there's anyone who is mourning their own sinfulness, who realizes that they are lost, that they are gone, far gone without Christ, that they would see their need for the Savior. And Lord, turn their hearts that they would repent and run away from their sins and apologize to You for their sins and receive the grace of Christ by believing in Him. And the Bible tells us that You justify the ungodly. And that's us without grace. And so, Lord, thank You for this Gospel. And I pray that You would glorify Yourself in all joy and thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, Amen.